welcome to this special edition of Decoding the Gurus. Listeners, I got a call on the bright red emergency gurus phone from my colleague Christopher, letting me know that there was an important interview that we needed to do. It's with a fellow named uh, Dan Gilbert, who um, got in touch with us because he wanted to share his experiences on the unofficial portal Discord server, that is the uh, portal associated with Eric Weinstein. God, is it Weinstein or Weinstein? We get this constantly wrong. It's Weinstein, like Einstein. Einstein, yeah. So I had it right. I had it right. Um, hi, Chris. Welcome. How are you? I'm, I'm doing all right, as usual. And I noticed you called me Christopher, which means that this is definitely serious. I don't think I've ever heard you call me Christopher before. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Christopher Cook, isn't your name? Is it Christopher Cook? No, it's Kavanaugh. Of course, it's Kavanaugh, isn't it? What, yes. what, what is this, man? What's this <laughs> name shaming? Is this okay. retaliation? L- listeners, you may not be aware if you don't follow Chris fanatically that he was interviewed on another podcast. And in it was nice. He gave a shout out to this podcast and mentioned me, which was nice, I thought. But then he dropped the ball pretty badly by getting my name wrong, listeners. Getting it wrong. What did you call me? Temporarily. Temporarily wrong. Matthew Smith, you described me as. Now, now that's the bit I don't understand, Chris, because, you know, Smith doesn't sound anything like Brown, like very different names. How did you get those two mixed up? Yes. So I admit I did make a slight error in uh, misnaming you. I was going to say dead naming you, but that's the wrong. <laughs> that's the wrong that's term. Incorrect. That's not the right term. That's incorrect. Yes. Uh, so, so glad I didn't say that. I'll point that out. But so, Matthew Brown. It's fair to say, I think, is a slightly generic <laughs> and and Matthew Smith. Although it doesn't sound similar, it has the same generic quality. <laughs> I yeah yeah I get it. No, I get it. You're saying my my name is so boring that it's easy to get mixed up with other boring names. Yeah. I get it. Yeah. So I, uh, I, I I I Chris, you know, I figured all that out within five seconds of you making that mistake. Um, so, but thanks for explaining it again. But, um, but let yeah. me just confirm. So this was, for anyone interested to give a plug, it's Embrace the Void. And Matthew already cheated uh, with me on that podcast. So this was just a retaliation, really. And I'm not even sure if he gave a shout out <laughs> to me or the podcast on that. Maybe you must have done because oh. you were introduced as it. But, um, but I don't remember you mispronouncing my name so maybe you got it right this is a bad this is a bad <laughs> line of uh argument maybe i did to go down. maybe so, i did so yes i'm i'm terribly sorry for that and i think the christopher cook shot was a a sufficient retaliation because i don't like that are you saying we should we should let the matter rest now shouldn't we we should let it go yes that's right. This isn't the normal episode, Matt. We can't just ramble on for hours and hours. <laughs> this, this is a, people are expecting concise to the point. Well, why are you yeah. interrupting my feed a week early? Yes, yes. I mean, I know people's time is valuable, and we got to show our listeners respect by getting straight to the point, no mucking around. Yeah, and we were a week late with the last delivery due to Scott Adams being terrible and uh, and my schedule being horrible at that time as well. So this this will be an episode that comes out this week. And then lucky listeners will 
hopefully have an extra episode or the normal scheduled episode next week. And we haven't announced who we're covering, at least not on the feed we have on Twitter. So do you want to that was drums. That was drums. Yes. We are covering ContraPoints, who is uh, Natalie Wynn in real life. So would you like to say a little bit about uh, Natalie slash ContraPoints, Chris? Yeah, she's a YouTube personality who produces these quite high production videos, touching on kind of culture war and political and philosophical issues. Unlike Scott Adams, I actually enjoy her content and... Yeah, it's fair to say that the announcement of covering her has led to some mixed reactions. She she won the vote online of the person that people would like us to cover, and lots of people have suggested her as a kind of she she's significantly left leaning and is also trans, so she fits more on the genuinely left, not IDW left side of things, and and kind of inhabits around the bread tube community. On YouTube, though, I think there's all sorts of internal conflicts there. But yeah, so people were mixed in our announcement that we'll cover her. Yeah. I, I think um, that we had, there's a couple of good discussions there because we, you know, we're kind of making this stuff up as we go along. So it's not like we've got a manifesto or anything. But it caused us to have a bit of a think about exactly what counts as a guru and what is the because we can't just cover anybody. We don't want just random politicians or talking heads covered or just someone we don't like or do like on Twitter. Yes, I'm talking about you, Liam. Um. (laughs) Yeah, look, I think it's fair just to note that like lots of gurus are very annoying people as you have probably recognized if you have listened to the previous episodes, but that isn't the defining characteristic of the people that we're interested in. So we always fully intended, as we noted in the first episode, to cover people that we agree with or even admire. So, yeah, it, this is not a hit cast, despite what some people may think. And I, I think it'll be more interesting if it isn't just always people that make us depressed and miserable. Yeah, I mean, I think it's understandable people could have gotten that impression because we have... <laughs> You know, we have we haven't liked probably the majority of the people we've covered a great deal. But you know, I think on one hand, what we try to do in the podcast is to, I guess, focus on those methods of persuasion and those rhetorical tricks, and I guess the less savory side of communication or guru-like activities. But in, I'm, I'm curious as to what you think about this, Chris, because we haven't actually talked about this yet. But I mean, in, in my mind. You know, somebody being a bit of a guru isn't necessarily, or regarded as a guru, isn't necessarily a bad thing. It can be, it often is, but it doesn't, it's not necessarily so. So someone like, I don't know, um, Noam Chomsky is kind of regarded as a, a genius who's sort of qualified to comment on almost anything and could be thought of as a guru. It doesn't necessarily mean that they do the kind of naughty stuff that we like to criticize them for. Does that make sense? Yeah, I I agree. I'm I'm playing around with definitions here, but you know, people can be stats gurus or can be maths gurus or that kind of thing. And so I think that we're not using it exactly in that usage, that definitional usage, but just to say that like guru doesn't 
automatically have negative connotations, although it often does. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, the other thing too, I guess, is that part of our motivation in thinking of ContraPoints to begin with too is wanting to get a bit of diversity in our cast. So it would get a bit boring if we just continually focused on these IDW or centrist slash slightly right-leaning people and um, didn't look across the spectrum. Although I hasten to add, I don't really think of, it, of us as having a political focus, but rather it's just nice to have a bit of diversity and ideological diversity, as well as getting a few women on as well. That would be good. Yeah, we've noticed that there is a heavily penis-shaped representation <laughs> on, on the characters that we close. And I don't just mean personality-wise, I mean they're... <laughs> yeah, you know, we get it, we get it, Chris. Yeah, we get it. <laughs> this is a, a terrible way to have said that there's too many men. Um, but the, the issue is that, like, I think there definitely is a gender skew in the online guru space, which is heavily male. But not to say that there aren't females, it just we need to try to seek out a little bit more diversity also to give us a break. So yeah, it's inevitable that we'll end up with lots of, I, I don't want to say like old white men, you know, I don't want to be Sarah Jong, but, but yeah, you know, middle-aged white men make up a fair proportion of the people that we are covering. It's just a just a demographic fact. Oh, those middle-aged white men. Gee, they really get up my nose. I know. What will they do next? <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're such scamps. I know. It's a good thing we are not anywhere near that category. Or uh, <laughs> no. yeah, online no, middle-aged no, white no, man with no. too many opinions. Good thing we we dodge that narrowly with our accents. <laughs> 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 well, this has probably gone on long enough. So shall we shall we draw a line under that and yeah. talk a little bit more about our interview? Yeah, so that that was our really shortened version of that. We'll have a longer version in the actual episode of ContraPoints. But yeah, maybe one of us will edit down our waffles. In any case, <laughs> so completely contradicting everything that we just said, we are again focusing on Eric Weinstein. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> And, and why, listeners? And why are we doing that? Because it makes Chris happy. Yeah, well, that's what we're doing. It. Uh, no, Matt, that's well, that's not why. <laughs> although that's partly why. But I, the the reason is that on the previous episodes where we've covered Eric, we we hinted at some of the issues that we, or at least I'd observed in his Discord community and the potentially unhealthy uh, guru ish community management techniques and manipulation, maybe, or at least interaction that was going on there. And we mentioned during that, Eric had labeled, he discussed kind of cryptically something about a mentally disturbed member of his community. And after the episode, the person that you will hear shortly that we interviewed, Dan Gilbert reached out to introduce himself as probably the person that Eric was referring to. And through our discussions and DMs, it turned out that he seemed entirely mentally stable. Um, he did. He did. He seemed. He seemed entirely unmad. And and to have very interesting insights um, about the experiences in the Eric's Discord communities and the kind of dynamics at play there. So it seemed like an interesting opportunity to have a look at Guru community management in the Web 2.0 space with 
a bit of a different format, interviewing someone who who has been a long-term member. And probably worth flagging that Matt and I are not expert interviewers. And so the interview that you're about to hear is slightly meandering <laughs> in the logical structure. But but hopefully you get something useful out of it. And yeah, and Dan was a really interesting guy to interview. And I think he had a lot uh, useful to say. Mm, okay, good. All right. Just a note for anyone interested, we launched the okay. Patreon. It's it's going much better, I think, than either of us had hoped. Uh, not hoped, that expected. We we currently have 27 patrons, which is really great. And we're going to be covering costs and we'll start giving shout outs from the next episode. And we're already kind of posting up some content there. But But yeah, just a short thing to say, like, Thanks for everyone signing up. We we genuinely really appreciate it. It's it's very validating. Yeah, yeah, no, it really it really has been. So thanks everyone. Um we really didn't know whether whether um people would care at all. And we're still slightly shocked that, that anybody's listening. So um people are not only listening but also uh liking it enough to chip in and um helping it not cost money for us. So um yeah, thank great. you. Wonderful. Um, yeah, so um, more more news to come regarding that kind of thing. And this episode will have a edited version of the interview to try and cut down our waffle, but the full version will be posted up on the Patreon. If people want to hear the complete unedited waffle, then you can join the Patreon and see it. <laughs> this is like this is like a pun- this is like a punishment yeah, for yeah. subscribing. Yeah. This, this is for <laughs> initiation ritual for the patrons. They get the full waffle. Okay, so here we are with Dan Gilbert, who has joined us to discuss the goings on in Eric's Discord communities, of which there are several. And Dan was infamously introduced to us because on the podcast looking at Eric's intro he mentioned that there was a mentally unstable member of the community that he claimed he was having issues with and that uh um I I had some speculations who that might be but Dan helpfully reached out to me by DM on Twitter and said actually I think that's me <laughs> and and uh we can get into why you were labeled the mentally unstable member of Eric's Discord community. But Dan, maybe a good start would be just to introduce your background and uh, how you came to be a member of Eric's Discord. Cool, yeah. So I'm here to speak for the uh, mentally unstable, I guess. Give the mentally unstable side of the story. Basically, I just kind of I'm just sort of like a Discord creature. So I'm some I, I used to be really obsessed with like watching everything that Jordan Peterson made and getting angry about it. And then I guess the fun thing to do is then go talk to his fans because it's like the most satisfying way to be angry about a public intellectual is to argue with the people who are really devoted to them. 
I feel, I feel like I'm talking to my shadow, maybe. But yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think we might suffer from some of the same complex. And so, yeah, so, you know, Jordan Peterson sort of went by the wayside for a couple of years because of health issues. So I'm really excited to see whether he makes a comeback or not, because to me, he's sort of the, he's like the apotheosis of guru public intellectual. Sure. But in the meantime, I've been following Eric Weinstein, and I just kind of view him as someone who is popular for, I think, a lot of the same reasons as Jordan Peterson. And he he does some similar things where he sort of occupies this political niche, which is really frustratingly hard to pin him on. He's just sort of like a political contrarian who denies having any kind of like political affiliations or, or positions because actually everything is in service of some sort of like larger philosophy. And the way he talks about everything, it's like a sort of entrancing way of talking Mm. where he cloaks everything in like three layers of like analogies. And so everything sounds 10 times more profound than it actually is. And then when you drill down and you say, okay, what argument is he actually making? What is he actually saying? It's either just like extremely inane, just some trivial, obvious statement, or it's just wrong and indefensible. You're a man after our own hearts. Yeah, you're, you're definitely preaching to the choir here, Dan. Um, <laughs> you're, we're on the same page with you there. So I, I'm on Eric's Discord, at least one or two of them, but I, I only pop in and out on occasion. And somebody mentioned that he was talking about us once and it might be worth popping in. And due to my lack of experience with Discord, I didn't actually hear that. I only heard the aftermath of him detailing low quality criticism and some guru-ish community management techniques that we we will probably get into. So maybe it's just worth mentioning to people that discords are a little bit like personal message board forms with channels to discuss specific topics or people can DM people. And they also allow you to do audio like mass group chats or smaller group chats. So that's my view about what a Discord is. And Dan, given that you are much more familiar with the Discord world, is that accurate? And also, how many Discords does Eric actually have? So... Discord is basic. It's just a chat client, but it's it's sort of you know sex, sectioned into servers. So people hang out in different servers related to different subject matters, and it's great because you form little communities around these servers for whatever the topic of the server is. Like usually, it's very often the most popular ones are based around people. So there's like a Destiny the Streamer Discord that's big. There's some Discords that are for just discussing politics in general, which are filled with all the loveliest people that you might imagine. What happened is this guy named Phil. He started a discord that was basically just like a fan discord for eric weinstein because there was no discord for that eric had for his portal community or whatever so you know a few people joined trickled in or whatever nothing much and then one day eric weinstein himself joined phil's discord so this was never like an official portal discord it's called the unofficial portal discord and then one day eric joined it which caused it to you know effectively become an official discord even though it wasn't and then people just started flooding into the server so now there's thousands of people in that server and it was really exciting because basically that server came up around the time when eric had finished episode 19 which i think is i think i think is an episode that you've talked about where eric and brett are talking about how Brett was, you know, mistreated in his academic history. And they sort of just weave a whole 
story about how Brett's idea was stolen from him. And it was, you know, like one of the most profound ideas in like biological history. It's an idea that has like enormous ramifications when it comes to medical testing, uh, you know, and because this idea was ignored and shoved aside because of the nefarious practices of people in academia who are trying to suppress it, you know, people are literally probably just dying on mass due to like side effects from drugs that weren't properly tested, that kind of thing. Yeah, we we have covered in detail on the first episode for anyone interested that particular revelation. And it's fair to say we probably share your skepticism <laughs> regarding if, if, if it is as revolutionary as claimed. Right. So it was really a salacious podcast and people came on the Discord because part, partly their culture around there was just like, we got to, you know, man together and fix this problem like he made this claim that there's this huge problem here we are we're ready to you know fix it uh and eric weinstein is always talking about how people you know there's the disc and we need to resist the disc and we need to somehow disc means distributed idea suppression complex right. a lot of his the things that he says have a nature of just being kind of like a calls to action so people on the discord were very motivated to sort of not just hang out and talk about eric but they were going they wanted to do projects they wanted to uh, like learn all kinds of math and physics and stuff so they could understand Eric's ideas, which he had led them to believe were changing revolutionary and nobody would listen to him. And so Discord community full of people who were super committed to him were interested in putting together all these projects in, in service of Eric's vision. Yeah, I'm, I'm not surprised to see to hear about that, that reaction from his fans to be supportive about um, dealing with this um, purported injustice that was done. Yeah, Dan, I remember when I first came across Eric's Discord and there seemed to be a lot of people, at least in the early stages, who were genuinely well qualified and well educated and were like enthusiastic about the project. And at the time I was already fairly skeptical about Eric. So I was slightly dismayed that he seemed to be attracting a community of well educated, intelligent people around what I would have regarded as fairly insubstantial and ridiculous claims. But then as I dipped in and out of the server over the coming months, I noticed a shift from the earlier days when I was seeing lots of people introducing themselves with their PhD credentials or whatever, to more what Eric has leaned into, the kind of anti-establishment conspiratorial stuff, and much less technical expertise being apparent but does that reflect my bias or misperception or is that reflective of your experience uh i don't actually remember there being like a very large concentration of people who were particularly qualified in math or physics on the server i think the people on that server probably are like more educated than average but a lot of the people on the server are programmers and people who maybe studied something in school and felt that school was like a waste of their time or that things didn't go well in their studies. I feel like there were a lot of grad students that like dropped out of grad school. And so they had in common with Eric this kind of like, oh, academia isn't a good place and, and should be changed to be more amenable to the way that I would have, you know, liked to learn or do projects or that kind of thing. But over time, there are certainly notable examples of people who are extremely qualified to interface with Eric on the subject matter of geometric unity, which is like his main intellectual contribution that he's been promising to everybody. And I think everyone who's been in a position that's qualified to actually try to understand it has given up because mm. 
Well, I can get into the reasons why. Yeah, so that that just with the little I know or have heard about the um, expert commentary of Eric's geometric unity theory, uh, essentially the impression I got from people who knew about this stuff was that the ideas were perhaps interesting but not fully fleshed out and rather vague, so ultimately a bit of a, a, bit of a nothing burger. Would that be right, Chris? Yeah, so my my impression from speaking to people that are much more qualified in me in the relevant areas is there's nothing much there for them to grapple with. There's the presentation he gave, which is a, not very easy for people to follow. It might have interesting ideas possibly, but the the reaction at the time seemed to be, okay, well you're making like a lot of really big claims so let's see the brass tacks right show us the equations and the paper and then we we can talk and actually people suggesting that they would be willing to do some of the like straightforward tests that could do the low level bullshit test i can't remember who it was somebody brought it up in the q a after his talk but in any case the the general consensus from the people i spoke to was until he publishes something there's nothing that they can look at and it has all of the hallmarks of the usual pseudoscience conspiracy claims of a theory of everything that will revolutionize physics and and whatnot yeah so well i can give sort of the history of geometric unity on the discord server okay so in march he was like teasing often when he would come on that he was thinking about releasing geometric unity that he was you know trying going to release some information about it and then come april fool's day he finally released it after for days just being like oh i don't know if i'm going to release it i don't think i can release it or you know i'm going to really plan out something so he released it one day and then it's so hard to communicate the audacity of the claims that he made like the week after that he released that video basically he came on discord and just with you know with the giddy excitement of everybody on discord and himself he would say things like this is going to just fundamentally change the world like with basically no uncertainty he was talking about how this is it like you are you are experiencing history right now we're going to wake up tomorrow <laughs> and the world is going to be a different place and like we're living through like the most one of the most exciting eras in history because this i just released this and i don't even know what's going to happen and, and that persisted, by the way. He To this day, just whenever he talks about geometric unity, he says things like, I'm more afraid that it's true than that it's false. Yeah, yeah. In fact, Dan, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I, I just want to support this by um, um, in um, recollecting that he was darkly hinting that he could not release the details of the geometric unity theory because it could lead to such... Uh, technologies of um, such unimaginable power that it would be almost irresponsible. <laughs> to... right. yeah, he, he doesn't trust the powers that be. You know, those people are the disc. Those people are lying to us all the time. Everybody in the government is lying to us. They have these conspiracies. The CIA is up to this and that. There's no way he's going to put, you know, this theory in their hands that has the power to, you know, destroy humanity, destroy the universe, get us to different planets, bend space time, that kind of thing. Because you know, his theory has 14 dimensions in it which means that we can just go around the first three dimensions. We can do whatever we want. 
Yeah, it's like it's taking four-dimensional chess to the nth level. But yeah, I, I also remember Matt where he had hinted in an interview that geometric unity could be used to create a doomsday device. That's why, Dan, when you mentioned that he fairly frequently mentions this in the Discord um, or these kind of grandiose claims. I mean, he it's not like Eric is in general a wilting flower when it comes to making grand claims. But he seems to let himself go more in the Discord. I just remember somebody asked him about the pandemic video on Twitter. And he said something like, you know, I'm not going to talk about that, but I'm going to go on a walk in a couple of hours so you can join me on, I think it was Instagram. He pointed that one. But I I didn't see that video, but I heard from other people who did see the video that he didn't endorse pandemic, but he went with the usual, you know, it's not all bad. It's not all good. There's stuff that's reasonable there and stuff that isn't. But but he also warned the people watching that he couldn't talk about these kind of things on his main channel and people shouldn't ask. So that led me to believe that on the Discord, maybe on the Instagrams that he doesn't keep recorded, that he was more forthcoming about his views. So it, it sounds like that's true. He, he's more willing to be just as hyperbolic as pos- possible about how important he is. He's more restrained on his podcast when he's talking about situating himself in human history. He tries to make it more about, you know, a political message about how, like, we need to fight the disc and that kind of thing and how here's what the disc is up to. But when he's on the Discord, everything is about, like, his historical situation uh, as, like, you know, maybe the next Einstein. There was there was Einstein, and he gave us this universal speed limit, and then there's Weinstein, and we're going to be able to, you know, get out of the prison that Einstein left for us now. Uh, he always talks about how geometric marginalism, his economics theory with Pia, is the most important economics discovery of the last 25 years, and everyone's ignoring it. And that it like literally would revolutionize everything about economics. The reason that we have basically any of the economic problems that we have now, where the government is able to have some control over the like social security, that kind of thing, that's just a symptom of the fact that our economics right now is bad. And in the future, we're going to have econo- geometric marginalism. So just to clarify, this means that Eric has a grand theory of everything for physics, right? Which is geometric unity. And with his wife, he also has a revolutionary theory of economics, which is geometric marginalism. Is that right, Dan? Yeah, it's, it's almost like he did his PhD on geometry and just <laughs> yeah. has a hammer and everything he sees is a nail. And uh, I, this also gets us to geometric marginalism and the conspiracies attached to it. So well, let's let's. I'll step back a bit and I'll talk a bit more about geometric unity. And then afterwards we can talk about the economic stuff. Uh, yeah. So, so he released that paper and basically everyone was like, okay, we're here. This is amazing. Like we're ready for geometric unity to become a thing. And he told the discord after he released the video that he was going to start working on geometric unity full time. He wouldn't be able to come on the discord as much because he was just going to hunker down and he was just going to work on it. And then Nothing ever came of that. It seems like he sort of stopped working on that. He never came back. He didn't come back to the server to like say, oh, I've, you know, I'm basically, he initially seemed to be saying, I've released this video. 
you know, now I'm going to work on actually releasing a paper and fleshing everything out and, and that kind of thing. But he never did that. And so people would often ask him like, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so when's this paper coming? You know, everyone, all these other scientists are saying that they can't make much of this lecture. So you should write a paper and, you know, where's this paper coming from? And so he has just like, uh, like a litany of excuses that change over time as to why he can't release a paper about it. Oh, let's, let's hear some of the excuses. Yeah. That sounds good. So they contradict each other. So, okay, so here's one excuse. Everything is already in the video. And if academics want to understand it, they can, but they just refuse to because they're being disky. Like if they just watched the video, they would understand. Uh, uh, but they, you know, they don't want to understand because they're afraid of this idea. Mm. Well, <laughs> regarding that excuse, it, it does beg the question why all physicists don't uh, release their findings via YouTube. I mean, it's, 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 anyway. it would save a lot of effort. It would save a lot of trouble. Yeah, just mucking around in LaTeX. Yeah. Anyway, um, let's go on. So I can't assess, you know, the contents of the video or everything. And yeah, you guys have talked about it on the podcast, but basically all the physicists that I have talked to, or one physicist in particular, and the sense that I get from other physicists that I see online is that basically, yeah, I mean, the, the lecture is not just like, you know, he wrote down all of the derivations and stuff from a paper. The lecture is kind of philosophical. It's kind of poetic. He spends a long time talking about hands drawing hands. <laughs> you know, that's like his main concern is sort of contextualizing it in terms of how profound it is philosophically before actually going on to give details of the math. The video ends with him writing down on the board like swerviture equals displasion or something like that, which I don't think means anything. <laughs> so it's like an introduction to a, an idea. It's I, I don't think that there's like enough specificity to it that any kind of physicist could take it and then flesh out the ideas into a full theory, especially mm -hmm. since they're all ideas that are, I think, really unique to his particular area of study. So he seems to have taken like all of his favorite geometric ideas and woven it into what he thinks is a theory of everything. Okay, so um, what were some of the other excuses? Another excuse is that he tried submitting his paper to archive in the past, but he couldn't because he wasn't affiliated with an institution. And most people did not take this excuse too seriously mm -hmm. because they were like, well, you know, I'm a part of an institution. I'll just upload it for you. Surprisingly, he did not take them up on that offer. Uh, perhaps for the following reasons, one of which is Academics don't deserve a paper <laughs> after the way they've treated him. He's been so mistreated by academia that just, you know, like, you know, he, he was going to give them his paper uh, that he's totally written, but now he can't because they don't deserve it. You know, maybe they don't, you know, they'll be irresponsible with it or they'll try to steal it from him. So that's another thing is that if he releases his paper, then they'll steal his ideas. Mm. I mean, that's not, we haven't even got to the doomsday device yet, but uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It makes no sense that he, if he released a paper, then they would steal his ideas because currently he's in the most vulnerable possible situation for people stealing his ideas, which is that he's like released a video of it, but he doesn't have on record him writing down as a paper what he did. The reason that you publish a paper on archive, a preprint on archive, is so that you get credit for having originated that idea in case you know somebody writes something similar in the meantime, right? That's true, Dan. That's very true. <laughs> That's a good observation. <laughs> So another reason that he can't do it is because he can't publish because he's too traumatized by academia. He would publish, but to the experience that he had at Harvard is, is too, too traumatized. Another one is that he intentionally doesn't want to publish because his H index is currently zero. H index is like the maximum number of papers that you've published that have a certain minimum number of citations. So he's he has an H index of zero and he wants to keep it that way. So as like a, you know, as an FU to academia, he wants to keep his H index at zero. That's why he can't publish his paper. Understandable. Another one is that he can't release his geometric unity paper because first he needs to revolutionize academia and make a new institution in its place, probably yeah. made out of people from his discord. Wow. Like he's very, he's always sort of framed the discord as if like, this is like our sort of grassroots thing that we're starting that is ultimately going to become 
the new institution. Uh, we are like the beginning of the future. We're basically going to overturn all of academia. And from now on, like research and learning is going to happen like this in, I guess, a discord or something like that. But most importantly, with Eric at the helm of it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's quite an exciting mission, isn't it? I can, I'm sort of put, trying to put myself in the place of the, the audience that you're describing, which is perhaps people who, who have some technical background and maybe didn't get as much out of education as they'd liked or didn't go as far in, in higher education or research as they would have liked. So I guess kind of dis- disaffected and disappointed people somewhat like um, Eric himself. Yeah, and it was a lot of people who were interested in like learning in a sort of non-academic environment. They, they had like had finished school or something and they were older now and they were interested in going back and studying something again. So that, that part of it was nice is that there were a lot of people who were genuinely just interested in doing like some kind of like learning outside of a traditional environment. Yeah, I remember after the audio direction I did hear on Eric's Discord, after he left, some members of the community started talking about alternative systems of education. I think it was to learn physics. And they were they were essentially saying, you know, all the points you would expect that the university system is not fit for purpose. We need alternatives. But the thing that struck me was one, the level of optimism, because there was there was kind of genuine commitment that they would be able to organize like a replacement for universities for physics education despite none of the people in that conversation having any relevant expertise or just basic things about who would teach it or these kind of courses but but it was it was a very passionate discussion amongst people about what this alternative system would do and, and, you know, thinking about the implications of once it exists, how the universities will be yeah. redundant and whatnot. It, but to be fair, it was only, you know, a couple of people on the Discord discussing it. So, right. yeah. A very common type of person, I want to say, back in those days on the server was the person who like either had never learned any calculus or they had never, maybe they, they just knew like, a little bit of calculus or something, who wanted to immediately go into learning gauge theory, which is something that Eric mentions a lot and I guess is underpinning some of his theories and is important in like theoretical physics. And so they all felt the whole way like undergrad and grad school makes you go through all these other classes before you can get there is just part of their like, you know, hopeless traditionalism. They're just wasting your time, taking your money. And really, you should be able to just if you know, like a little calculus, or maybe even if you don't, you can just sort of jump into gauge theory. And very often, they'd ask Eric questions of that manner. I don't know any calculus. Can you explain gauge theory to me, Eric? Yeah, I guess, um, I guess the dynamics of it would be I'm trying to say this in a polite way, um, be supportive of Eric's impression of himself in the sense of having relatively naive or unqualified people to go to him and, and, and to be the teacher and to, and to sort of help them. Well, I, I don't know. I can see the appeal of especially people at that stage of life going back to learning or who don't want to invest tons of money in the university system and whatnot. And I understand that. And I also get that they might have the feeling that academics are just sneering at them and dismissing them. But the thing that strikes me about all of these discussions is it kind of ignores the existence of MOOCs and all of the freely available undergraduate and graduate level courses that you can access fairly easily now. Like I've took stats courses on Coursera and the level of learning is great. So there's never been a 
better time to be an independent learner. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So I've got a similar impression that I'm. I have a bit of a fascination with. Uh, physics and astronomy and even though i'm totally naive about it so i, I listen to a, a podcast called the titanium physicist podcast and they are a couple of physicists and they have working researchers as guests on their podcast who who talk about their research for instance in detecting neutrinos or, or something like that and the implications of what they're doing it's it's pretty technical stuff but they yeah. they really make an effort to explain it to naive people like myself and it's it's absolutely fantastic stuff so if you if you enjoy um, learning about these topics, it's a fantastic time to be alive. But that seems to be very different from what's happening in a group like Eric's. Can you comment on that, Dan? Yeah, I think I have a certain personal like sort of bias against the idea of self-learning. I think maybe there's other people who can pull it off. But in my experience, the structure that's imposed on you by having a course where you like have to do homework and you have to like get problems graded, you're forced to show up. To me, that kind of structure was essential in actually being able to like go in depth into learning something. And I think a lot of times when people feel that they could just self-teach something very often by just like watching YouTube videos, mm. they're not they're really underestimating the extent of what they don't know about the subject mm. and just how long the journey is from where they are to what they actually want to be able to know and how hard it would be to just self-motivate yourself through that every step along the way. Mm. Yeah, I think that's a really important point because there's, there's a distinction between some sort of genuinely informative content or knowledge versus this assets version, which gives you the impression of getting knowledge. So the kind of thing that I'm describing, they they really make an effort, even though the content might last for two hours. You know, that's as, as long as a, a as a, a pretty long lecture, for instance. They they're very realistic about what their audience doesn't know yeah <laughs> so they 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 do you know try to give you a sense of what they're doing and what it means and why it's important uh-huh. but they're very much aware of what they can't teach us in a mere two hours whereas part, part of the deal with, with with gurus i guess is to give the impression that you can dive straight in and and grapple with the with the really deep and highly technical aspects of their of the material yeah, one of my favorite things that would happen on the server, especially early on, is so Eric would would come on the server in order to sort of be like regaled by his followers. They would ask him questions, he would get interviewed, and people would ask him the question, "I want to learn gauge theory. You know, how do I learn gauge theory?" And I think any reasonable person would say, "Okay, well, if you want to learn gauge theory, first you need to learn calculus and analysis and algebra and that kind of thing. There's all these prerequisites that you need to build up both your prerequisites and your math sophistication in order to be able to get to the point where you can actually do the math of gauge theory. Also, it's a sort of a physics thing, so there'll be a lot of physics involved. Uh, But instead, the way he answers that question is by literally just starting to explain gauge theory to them. Like, I'm going to teach you right now what gauge theory is in the, you know, two minutes that this answer is going to 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 last and so he gives some extremely metaphorical explanation of gauge theory or he's sort of like describing objects in space he's like describing maybe a cool object that's related to gauge theory or something like that and then he'll finish with his explanation which teaches nobody anything about what gauge theory is you know that's not what doing math or physics is like yeah. like a real analytical component but then the person who asked the question is like okay i think i get it yeah, yeah. it seems very performative doesn't it yeah like yeah, I think they feel like they're sort of learning physics through osmosis, like by talking to people who know physics and asking them questions about it, that they're just sort of like learning physics. Okay, yeah, so so there's one more reason why he said that he 
couldn't release his paper. And I think this is like the most disturbing one. Which and this one's much more recent. So he said he w- he was going to tell us about geometric unity, but he won't now because the community has let him down. The main reason being is that they have failed to get rid of the unbelievers. They've like failed to excise the community of untrustworthy people. So he feels like he can't yeah. trust the community. So he can't release a paper to us. I think you would probably count as one of these individuals, Dan. There's reason to believe that my continued existence on the server is one of the reasons <laughs> that he said that. But it is just kind of disturbing to me that he's telling his fans that they haven't done a good enough job like creating an environment in which like his ideas can be sufficiently private and they're like failing to usher in the new age that he's been asking us to usher in. Yeah, this gets to one of the reasons we wanted to do this interview was that when I was on the Discord hearing Eric talk that one time when he was complaining about us and other low-quality criticism people, I got a really quite unpleasant vibe based on the kind of the dynamic that you're talking about where he was expressing disappointment i think at that time it was somebody had recorded audio and released it but it was very much in the view of you guys i'm giving you something very precious here i'm interacting and i don't want to but i might have to pull back if i can't trust you and one part of that can be related to you know releasing audio which he wants to keep private but the the more disturbing side of it was in this low quality versus high quality criticism that And the impression I got was that he put into low quality criticism, any form of criticism that would suggest that he is veering close to pseudoscience or that would not take his fundamental premises for granted was low quality criticism. And it it came across as like, I don't want to say cult leader, because I don't think it's that extreme, but it was the same dynamic of chastising the community for lacking faith. And it was clear from some of the responses that some of the people in the community had a genuine emotional commitment to Eric. And so we're taking the potential for him to leave or withdraw as a serious threat that they needed to do something. And and that whole dynamic just struck me as like really toxic. It was kind of bizarre because what happened is some some random person who was there for when he was talking about his Harvard story on the Discord leaked the audio onto YouTube. It wasn't me. <laughs> uh, and he he said he was acting as if it was the Discord community's fault at large. And he kept saying things like, I just don't know if I can trust you. Like, I've really been let down here. Like, I, I don't know. He, he never said, I know that it's impossible for you to make sure that nobody ever does something like that. So I know it's not your fault. Instead, he just kept saying that I, I don't think I can trust the community anymore. <laughs> as if like it was the community at large, their faltering trust in him had allowed this random incident to happen. It was very bizarre. Yeah. In some sense, you may end up being the nail on the coffin for community yeah. interaction. So speaking of low-quality criticism, an example of what he considers low-quality criticism is there is one person on the server who has a PhD in theoretical physics, and that person has, on a few occasions, talked to Eric about geometric unity, and he's asked him the questions that he thinks he needs to ask in order to get to figure out if geometric unity is a thing or not, basically. and. He, he he asked Eric, you know, can you produce or have you produced a Lagrangian for your theory? 
according to this guy, he felt that a he he figured that Eric probably already had a Lagrangian because it would be one of the basic things that you would do when you create a theory of everything in order to like connect the theory to the actual physics and being able to predict anything about reality, right? So he asked Eric, like, you know, do you have a Lagrangian? If you have a Lagrangian and you can provide it, then basically I could assess, you know, whether your theory, you know, is working out or not. And Eric sort of answered in a sort of roundabout, sort of poetic way about the Lagrangian. You know, he went back to talking about hands drawing hands, which is one of his favorite things to do when people ask him a little bit too detailed questions about uh, geometric unity. <laughs> so a few days later, or weeks later, we saw he was on Brian Keating's podcast, and he went on a little rant on Brian Keating's podcast about how, uh, when physicists see my theory, they just ask if I can provide a Lagrangian because they just want to shut down my theory as fast as possible. They just want a Lagrangian so they can throw it out. So in his mind, even like theoretical physics PhD, like PhD asking him questions about like what could make this theory verifiable, he considers to be low quality criticism. Yes. That, I mean, it's understandable that we get lumped into low quality criticism. <laughs> but, but, but that seems slightly unfair. Dan, I, I hate to ask you this because of its self-indulgent nature, but I, I, can't, I can't resist. Like I've, I've never actually heard Eric discuss us. You know, we've had <laughs> run-ins on Twitter and whatnot. But is the gist we we just don't get it and we're just fixated on his hair? Our our criticisms are just you know superficial and not getting to it. Yeah, I mean, so he basically he is obsessed with everything everybody says about him online he is if he like name searches himself and he, what he has said multiple times he comes on the server and he reports to us everywhere that somebody has said something bad about him so one of the things he says is he he was giving us a little lecture about what good versus bad quality criticism is he knows every podcast where people have, have talked about him in a negative light and so this is one of them so he said if you want to hear bad quality criticism look up the decoding the gurus podcast and so he like directed it, directed us to the podcast that we could listen to, understand, you know, what kind of bad quality criticism is. And he didn't say much about it. He just sort of said that, yeah, like basically you guys just have a pathological obsession with tearing him down because, you know, you're not interested in real rigorous math or science or whatever. You're just jealous or something. So <laughs> that, that's, I'm, I'm kind of surprised, though, that he did point people uh, to the episode. His take is that he knows that he's doing a good job because. When people are criticizing him, the criticism is so low quality that if, if he was really doing something wrong, then the criticism would be of better quality, right? And he's always talking about how he is he really is interested in criticism. He wants high quality criticism. He'll he's seeking out criticism because he wants to better himself. So like any criticism he's interested in. But of course, not low quality criticism, right? Yeah. So it doesn't sound like he's ever gotten any high quality criticism. It's weird how rare this high-quality criticism is. I'm sure if you asked him for examples of high-quality criticism, he would give some bizarre esoteric example of something that isn't really even criticism. Okay, so I think we were going to turn now to a little bit about the story, which sort of led you personally to be singled out perhaps a little bit. The short version of the story is that he came on the server and he talked about something which he has also talked about on his podcasts, which is a conspiracy theory that he has about something called the Boskin Commission. And it involves certain people from Harvard, uh, who he talks about by name as having colluded, fraudulently messed with social security by their solution to the index price problem. And so after I talked to him, I 
emailed somebody who was involved in the story and asked them like for their comment on it. I was just like, so Eric says, this is what happened at Harvard. And this was a person who was Pia's advisor, but it's one of the people he mentions by name in the story as having been a part of the problem. And they just responded. They said, we can't, we can't, ask, we can't answer questions about former students. And then they forwarded that email to Pia, uh, Eric's wife. And then Pia showed Eric. And so somehow from that email, which had my real name attached, Eric knows who I am. He has somehow linked together my screen name and my real name. And he just like knows who I am and is not a fan. I sort of like this because in the worlds of internet forums and discords and stuff, inter-community drama is just a fact of life, right? Like as it is on Twitter. But in this case, like what often like causes problems in community in forums and communities is like when real life intrudes on the dynamics. And so I kind of like this, not a nefarious way, yeah. just in the way that it sounds like Eric was weaving a rather strong conspiracy theory involving his wife and her supervisor on the Discord that, that alleges serious wrongdoing, as, as we'll probably get into. And when somebody then fact-checked that claim, right, by just reaching out to someone and saying, hey, does, is this true? It then returned, it got back to his wife, right, and the supervisor and burst the bubble of, oh, I can talk about whatever I want on the Discord without it having any impact. And I, I think this relates to me the way that Eric and Brett completely trashed Carol Greeder on their episode. And Eric's fans went after her on social media, essentially accusing her of suppressing Brett and not giving him due credit. And I feel like... In some respect, it's a taste of his own medicine. <laughs> am I am I taking too much joy in this? That if you make conspiracy theories and you allege people do bad things, it's not unreasonable that somebody might ask one of the people, did you do that bad thing? But I can see why it would cause a lot of trouble for you interpersonally. Yeah. I mean, I get the sense that he, maybe his fame is catching up to him and he never really, like to him, he can sort of say things to his fans and it doesn't really interface with real life that much, but he's become famous enough that if he <laughs> makes claims about people that actually exist that he knows where he basically accuses them of having committed fraud or something, then he, he can't just go around doing that and expect it. It's going to be just sort of like some private thing that he told his friends or something or some sort of like, I mean, I don't think he's afraid of sort of relatively baselessly speculating about things. And so I think it's sort of catching up to him now that when he accuses people of having like engaged in some kind of like coordinated evil, people are actually going to be interested enough to follow up on that and see if it's actually true. I say it's the same dynamic as outlining for two hours how nefarious and evil Carol Greeder is and how her suppression of Brett's insight may be costing millions of lives from the lack of safety checks. But then ending by saying, you know, well, we're not sure. Like this is this is all just speculation, and we'd be happy to discuss it in in detail. We're not saying anybody is actually a bad person. It's quite a remarkable, powerful disclaimer he has related to that, Dan. So I'm probably doing this completely in the wrong order, but your your interaction there relates to the geometric marginalization, right? And and the disc suppressing it through kind of Eric's wife and their dissertation. So maybe it makes sense to outline geometric marginalization and how it 
comes into things. Yeah, geometric marginalism. Oh, marginalism. Sorry. Okay, so he and his wife wrote this chapter or, or, or worked on this theory when she was in grad school. I think he was like a postdoc at MIT at the time, so they lived near each other. And they were also not married yet. This was like part of their courting uh, like ritual. This is sort of how they met and fall in love. Uh, was while she was doing her PhD at, at Harvard in economics. And there's a chapter in the book, The Physics of Wall Street, about Eric Weinstein. It's just solely about Eric Weinstein and geometric marginalism and how, you know, th- this conspiracy theory that he has, which makes me think that the author of this book must have just like interviewed him and just written down what he said about it. Um, so you can read all about this story basically in the last chapter of that book, The Physics of Wall Street. I've read the chapters of her dissertation that is basically all they've actually produced about geometric marginalism so far. And basically he's applying gauge theory to economics. More specifically, he's applying gauge theory to the index number problem. So he ha- he's like the most extreme version I've ever seen of like math undergrad syndrome, which is like when people, they do math and they just view every other subject as being like a more trivial version of math or just applied math. And so if you understand math, the most fundamental you know, study, the hardest, the most rigorous study, then every other subject is basically trivial. And the only reason other people do those subjects instead of math is because they're less intelligent. And they're all just kind of incompetent and sitting around and like twiddling their thumbs until a mathematician comes and like saves them by showing them fancy math that will blow their mind and revolutionizes their subject matter. This sounds very familiar. He's working with Pia, and he's telling Pia, economists have no idea what they're doing. They don't even understand math. They're pathetic. And then, you know, she was trying to convince him, oh, no, there's some, there's some real stuff going on in economics. But anyway, so their project together was basically applying a very fancy kind of math, which is like some gauge theory, to the index number problem. And the chapter is written in such a way that, like, you, they're deriving, deriving, deriving this thing in a kind of interesting a mathematical kind of impressive way it's very interesting and then right at the end of the chapter they're like okay so what we did was we re-derived a solution to the index number problem which has existed for a hundred years we just sort of like gave a new interpretation to it using differential geometry dan just to interrupt you what is the index number problem i'm not the right person to explain this because i'm not an economist but basically the index number problem is like if you want to calculate the amount of inflation for instance then you would take a basket of goods at a certain time and look at the price and then you would look at the basket of goods at a later point in time and look at the price the most naive way to calculate uh inflation is just by like taking the price of the basket later in time comparing it to the price of the basket earlier in time uh but that has some problems because like depending on whether you use the prices as a reference point at the beginning of that time period or the end of that time period you get different results so like in practice there is some kind of it's it's ambiguous like what is the best solution to the index number problem and i think in practice what people tend to do I'm not 100 percent sure about this is there exists sort of like indexes which are sort of like averages of those other indexes so they take like multiple time points and they just sort of like calculate they just sort of like average index numbers that you get from like fixing on certain time points um, and that ends up being a bit of a, like an approximation to what the Divisia index is, which the Divisia index is basically just like a continuous time, or it's a, it's a solution to the index number problem, which like takes into account continuous time changes into price and quantity. So if you like know the functional form or like the mathematical form of these like changes in price and quantity, then you can like solve a system of differential equations uh, in order to like be able to derive this index number. But because 
in real life, we don't have functional forms for the prices and quantities of goods. We just have observations at discrete point in times. Ultimately, approx- what we end up using is basically approximations to the Divisia index, which take the form of these other index numbers. Yeah. So correct me if I'm wrong here, Dan, but I mean, I can see how this is just a, a neat little problem, an interesting challenge to estimate inflation when the basket of available goods and services is constantly changing. But it does seem like the kind of technical problem that isn't nothing, but it doesn't sound how any even even a new solution to that problem would revolutionize economics. Is there something we're missing? Yeah, he introduces nothing new except maybe a new perspective on something that already exists, which is totally fine. There are lots of papers like that. But the way that he presents what he's done in economics, first of all, he repeatedly refers to it as the most important breakthrough in economics in the last 25 years, at least. He he mostly on the Discord server, rarely on his podcast does he say things like that. But basically, he believes, much like geometric unity is going to be like a profound historical breakthrough in physics, geometric marginalism, to the extent that they did it, was an enormous breakthrough in economics, except for the fact that it was ignored by the economics community because they're afraid of new ideas. And more importantly, they don't understand math. They're just like not smart enough to like understand it. Mm, this is a common theme, isn't it? Right. <laughs> <laughs> we've, we've covered physics with geometric unity, biology with the telomeres, and now economics with the uh, index price problem. In each case, it's a, a situation in which the entire field purportedly cannot appreciate or is scared of these fundamental revolutionary ideas that are very hard to see how there's anything there. Well, and there's, a, there's another reason why geometric marginalism was overlooked or disked, and it's much more nefarious. Oh. So, um, <laughs> so Eric Weinstein has this conspiracy theory about what's called the Boskin Commission. Uh, the United States government is in the business of calculating an index number, the like uh, the consumer price index, and it's important because they actually adjust social security payouts based on the consumer price index. So depending on how they calculate inflation, they're going to pay out more or less for social security. If you just calculate you know, inflation in a relatively naive way, you'll tend to overestimate the amount of inflation because of substitution effects and goods becoming archaic, and I don't know, there's different economic effects that make it hard to estimate. And so Economists at the time generally and still generally believe that, you know, the consumer price index was being overestimated. And so they formed this commission called the Boskin Commission, which is, I think there were only like six people in it. And some of them were from Hart, where Harvard professors of uh, economics, where Pia was. And they basically tasked them with estimating how much they were overestimating the consumer price index. And so this commission met a few times and, you know, there was some criticism of, of the commission and, you know, how good a job they did on this, just like I imagine there would be for any kind of like economic decision making like this. But they convened and they ultimately came up with, okay, we believe that the consumer price index is biased upwards by 1.1%. So we should adjust the like yearly inflation that we're estimating, you know, downwards by 1.1% of what we had been estimating before. Uh, so Eric believes that the government basically did this as a way to reduce social security payouts in a way that would never be like politically feasible. They did it so that they could do it in secret. And basically they just put together this commission of like willing patsies from the Harvard Economics Department. The Harvard Economics Department is full of these willing patsies. They, they're just back at the beck and call of the government will do whatever nefarious thing the government tells them to do. So they put together this, this you know, commission of these six people who 
coordinated in order to be able to come up with the number 1.1%, which would result in about a trillion dollars over 10 years. So it's like a very intentional number that they came up with because they were tasked with just reducing social security uh, payouts by a certain amount. Now, one of the people on the Boskin Commission named Dale Jorgensen was like a very senior professor at Harvard. And Eric claims that you know, he and Pia were working on her dissertation. It was going amazing. These ideas were deeply profound. It was incredible. Um, like they were revolutionizing economics. And then basically one day they go in and Pia's thesis advisor says, no more gauge theory. Like no more of this geometric marginalism, which is not what it was called at the time. But like, you know, you stop writing, <clears throat> stop writing dissertations about gauge theory. And so, you know, their their project was thwarted basically. And the first chapter remains intact, but the second chapter wasn't as gauge theory-like as he wanted it to be. It, it, they, the, you know, um, Pia's advisor, Eric Maskin, forced her to write it using just sort of like regular calculus so that it would be more understandable to economists. And then the third chapter of her dissertation is about something else entirely, because essentially they had to scrap their work on geometric marginalism because Eric Maskin, her advisor, told them that they had to stop. And the reason they told them they had to stop is because Dale Jorgensen told Eric Maskin that what they were doing was a threat to the Boskin Commission and what the Boskin Commission was trying to pull, that if this new revolutionary way of calculating the index number problem, you know, came to light, then the Boskin Commission wouldn't be able to get away with their nefarious wrongdoings anymore because there would finally be like a correct way to solve the index number problem instead of their, you know, the nonsense that they were trying to pull. This is the point where your fact-checking email comes in, right? Right. After that conversation. But to be fair, everything that he said in the server about that conspiracy theory, he has also said on his podcasts or on his appearances on other people's podcasts. So this isn't like he, he, you know, he let us know the name of this person that he wouldn't have let us know otherwise. So I just, I sent a message to Eric Maskin being like, you know, like Eric Weinstein, I don't know if you know who that is, is, you know, going around basically saying that you were told that you had to shut down Pia's research on gauge theory and economics. Is this true? Like, what's your take on this? My, my main wrongdoing is that I did describe Eric's claims as incendiary and evidenceless. So many of the many of the denizens of the portal server found my actions to be really, you know, really low because I described what Eric was doing as being like evidenceless and incendiary. That that, that is a mortal sin. I suspect your appearance on this podcast will not go down particularly well either. But the thing that is quite striking about that is that again, it's it's similar to geometric unity, right? In that the whole economic system in the US is hanging in the balance of Pia's uh, like PhD thesis. Quite a, quite an achievement for a doctorate student. The other aspect of it too is that the absence of something is explained by um, nefarious forces. Yeah, in the case of the thesis, it's the absence of going ahead and presenting something on this. Um, with geometric unity, it's the absence of an actual, you know, mathematically fleshed out, properly reported theory. Yeah, there's, there's usually a, a big explanation for the lack of something substantial. So, so it doesn't really make sense what he's claiming about how the Boskin Commission would be like so scared of this discovery. Because like I said, this discovery is just 
they didn't create any new index numbers or anything like that. Like they just gave some additional perspective or insight into one particular way of solving the index number problem. And so I asked him that. I said, you know, why do you say that? Like, why why did the Boskin Commission have to shut down your research when you were rederiving the Divisia index, which already existed? And then his answer to that, he gave two different answers. Uh, one is that they were just that Dale Jorgensen just didn't understand gauge theory, and so he saw it and just didn't know what to make of it, and so he just saw that it was about the index number problem, so he just he just he just wanted to shut down any possible threat, even though he didn't understand it. And then another uh, answer that he gave is that uh, later, when pressed on it more, is just like, well, you know, what we're doing is in the direction of making things more concrete, so that there's less wiggle room. So you know, if if everyone just used this index number because we gave this perspective on why it's good, then the Boskin Commission wouldn't be able to have wiggle room in order to you know pull this nefarious scheme, which is also not true because even if you use the Divisia index and all of its continuity in order to solve this problem, you, there's still other things that you had to adjust for that the Boskin Commission was working on adjusting. That also doesn't make sense. In general- general it doesn't make sense because a paper by a world-renowned economics expert would not necessarily overturn a commission's finding right even from somebody with like really high standing there, there can be like multiple perspectives on economics or scientific issues and it strikes me as semi-delusional <laughs> it's, it's just imagining that specific papers in in this case, like a graduate thesis has the power to undo so much. If it's anything like 99.9% all graduate thesis, nobody would read it except for the, the supervisor and the student. Well, this is different because, again, he has the secret juice, which is math. You know, the, all, most economics is just absolutely nonsense because they don't use the specific math that he studied in grad school. He, we, he was asked, like, okay, so you were working on this during grad school. I guess this maybe was shut down by the professors at the grad school. They didn't want you working on too much gauge theory stuff. They thought it was too complicated for economics, or maybe this Boskin Commission stuff is true, whatever. But your wife now works at an economics think tank, which I believe that she has some control over. And you are, you know, Eric Weinstein. So why don't you guys, if, if, you're constantly talking about how revolutionary that this like set of ideas is, some of which you've exposed in the consumer price index problem, but some of which have like yet to be revealed. Like you, it was shut down before you could write about them by the Harvard staff. So why don't you just write about it now? Why don't you just put it out now? And you can imagine what his answer to this question is. It's exactly the same answer as he gives about why he can't release his geometric unity paper. He's like traumatized by academia. He doesn't trust them with it, that kind of thing. They don't deserve it now because of the way that they treated him. That's convenient, convenient. That's, uh, yeah. These kind of responses, don't they lend themselves? Like, I, I know from seeing people online that there are people who completely buy into his shtick, but it, it also feels like some of it must become a little bit transparent if you spend significant amount of time invested on it. It feels like there's only so many times someone can say, I would show you that, but you're not ready yet before you kind of start doubting if there's anything actually there. I would say there's a little bit of a split in the community about the reactions to this. So I think there are a good number of people in the community who do sort of see, oh, he said he was going to like release a paper about geometric unity, and then he didn't, and then he's making all these excuses why he can't, but why doesn't he just do it? He should really put up or shut up. There are some people in the community who have that position. I would like to think that some of that is due to me going around and screaming at everyone about it, but I, I think most of them would come to that conclusion on their own anyway. 
there's also just like I'm I'm constantly amazed that there's a significant number of people, especially in the more like devoted, I would say like cultish sect of the people who are on that server who just literally believe him. They just say like, well, he, you heard him. He's traumatized by academia. Have you heard the way they treated him? Like, <laughs> or or they'll often they just like, well, he's working on it. Yeah, he's gonna release it. He's working on it, which is not what he says, <laughs> but that's their sort of rationalization. I think related to this, Dan, you mentioned in the DMs with me that there was at one point a separate Discord set up just for experts, right? Or people with relevant expertise, but it it didn't go the way it was supposed to. Yeah. So I guess, uh, so Eric likes to talk about how you know, he wants people to ask more technical questions. So oftentimes on podcasts that he's on, like if there's people super chatting in the questions, people ask a bunch of sort of fluffy questions about life or something. And then sometimes he'll very aggressively say, you know, come on, let's, I want to get some real questions. Why, Why don't we get some technical questions about geometric unity? And then almost nobody listening has any kind of like technical expertise that would allow them to ask an intelligent question about it. So they're just like, tell us more about the dimensions, Eric. And then he loves that. His favorite thing to do is to give like fluffy, layman-esque, but kind of metaphorical answers to questions about what's going on with geometric unity. So that's his favorite thing to do. But he's always talking about how what he's really looking for is like someone who really knows what they're talking about to talk about, you know, to ask him really technical questions because he wants to go and dig into the details, which... I don't know why a podcast would ever be the right, you know, a podcast for like general audience or would ever be the right venue for that. How dare you, Dan? How dare you disparage podcasts and their ability to... True. Well, we're going to get on this podcast, we're going to get into the real nitty gritty details of my theory of everything. So he, he started this server that was like for experts only, which I guess is more of a move than I would expect uh, towards like him actually trying to get expert feedback. So it makes me think that he really does think that what he wants is like expert feedback, but I don't believe that's what he really wants. Um, because so he started the server. So one of the people on the server was, you know, the PhD phys- theoretical physics guy. Uh, and one of the people on the server was a person who has a PhD in math, who's like, a, I think right now he's a postdoc in, no, sorry, he, he has a PhD in math. And it's on a subject that is very intimately related to something that Eric Weinstein claims. Eric Weinstein claims that he discovered the Cyberg-Witten equations when he was a PhD student in math, but that his professors told him to stop working on that because it wasn't interesting. And then, of course, later it became a big thing. (laughs) The thing that I find interesting is there seems to be a contradiction there. He says that he's really interested in technical questions to be dealing with the actual hard stuff, but... At the same time, he won't write stuff down, won't publish papers, and when a physicist, as you said, actually does ask him for some technical details, for instance, the Lagrangian associated with his theory, then he completely dismisses it and rebuts it. So there seems to be a contradiction there. There is a problem that Eric encounters a lot, that he he makes grandiose discoveries that are then suppressed by him and his immediate family seem to have a very unfortunate time of meeting these suppression indexes. It's odd. Right. So this this guy who has a has a PhD in math, uh, you know, he came on the server. He was kind of an Eric fan. He was interested. Like he wasn't an Eric skeptic really, I don't think, when he first came on. But he came on the server basically to ask Eric questions about this cyber Witten thing because he had done his thesis on the cyber Witten equations. So, you know, Eric is in the chat answering questions. And then this guy, he asked him 
like question about like how he discovered the Cyborg-Witten equations. Eric gives a sort of poetic answer, lots of metaphors, doesn't really say anything. And then he asks a question that's something like, you know, how did you discover the flipped sign in the Cyborg-Witten equations? It's something that I guess anyone who studied the Cyborg-Witten equations would know that it has this sort of interesting nuance that's kind of counterintuitive. So he asked Eric, you know, like how did, you know, when you were discovering the Cyborg-Witten equations, how did you discover this interesting aspect of it? And the answer that Eric gave convinced him that he didn't really have any idea what Eric, what uh, this mathematician was talking about. Uh, Eric just kind of waffled in response and, again, gave kind of a poetic answer that didn't really touch on it at all. Um, so so he, at that point, was kind of convinced that, you know, Eric's claim is almost certainly not true, as stated. And then after Eric got offline that night, this mathematician was just excoriated by the community for having said things like, well, I think our default position should be that we're skeptical that like, you know, geometric unity is true. So we should, you know, first not believe it and then see if there's evidence to believe it. And the community did not like that approach. They were saying, uh, you know, that's ridiculous. Like, why would you think that Eric would lie about this? Eric doesn't lie, that kind of thing. So basically Eric, so he created this server with like the more expert people on it. And I think he went on it at most twice Basically, the perception of both the mathematician and the physicist is that whenever, like, Eric will not be in a room with them anymore. Like, whenever they're on the server, Eric leaves, and whenever, and they, Eric will not come on the server when they're there. And they've tried to have conversations with Eric since then, and they're just not able to. So they're both under the, under the, they, they both believe Eric is essentially avoiding them. <laughs> on his own Discord. Yeah. <laughs> There's something kind of funny about that. Well, um, this is all terribly. <laughs> suggestive, isn't it? <laughs> Very suggestive. Yeah, so given your involvement with the Discord and Eric's community and, and your kind of contrarian role there, self-admitted, which I respect for, for various reasons, how, how do you view Eric in terms of, is he someone to be concerned about or is he a harmless person peddling a little bit of silly conspiracy theories do you think there's actually any harm that he does or it's all you know esoteric uh mathematical exaggerations and whatnot so i think with jordan peterson i felt more like there was like a real problem that that I felt what Jordan Peterson was doing was like dressing up bigotry against trans people in particular in a sort of like grand narrative about how, you know, his way of seeing the world. And he had these like really, really passionate followers because he was able to really talk in a way that sounded so profound. It was like such a deeply interesting, new, profound way of viewing the world. And I don't think that that, I mean, to me, that's just like irritating because I, I feel like they're so full of crap. But with Jordan Peterson, I felt like it was kind of, it was bad because he had also had like, I think a pretty harmful political message going along with it. With Eric, it's not, his political messages are this diffuse conspiratorial anti-establishmentism, which I just think is not particularly harmful because it's so unfocused. His Political positions are just about why he has deeper insight into how the system works than everybody else. Like his political take on everything is just about how everything is really about like the way that, you know, these two sides are fighting. But actually, I have the deeper insight, which is that, you know, all of this is part of a larger problem, which is, you know, like Eric's anti disc stuff. But in terms of like his actual like bewitching of his followers, I. Like, I don't know. I don't think that this, I haven't seen any followers who are so, so possessed that I feel like it's particularly harming their lives. And if anything, it just sort of encourages people to like take up a very short term hobby and trying to learn theoretical physics and then give it up after a week.
<laughs> yeah, that doesn't sound too bad, does it? No, and it echoes, Matt, the kind of point you made from your perspective, the main thing that Eric wants to communicate with, even with his kind of political conspiracies and whatnot, is how insightful he is rather than any specific position which he might hold mattering. Yeah, exactly. I said something similar, Dan, which was that his main agenda is uh, about him, that the politics or the social impacts is kind of all over the place. And and as you said quite well, I think, if there's harm involved, it's really just promoting a, a general conspiratorial worldview, which uh, endorsing one conspiracy theory kind of leads to another one and another one. It's a bit of a domino effect. So, yeah. It's like the, the real point of Brett Weinstein conspiracy with, with Carol Greider is not that medical testing is deeply compromised. It's that Brett is a genius. That's really the point of that story. It's not like, oh, you guys need to go out now and fix like the pharmaceutical industry. Like it's just like oh you guys should know that Brett is a super genius. The like when it comes to like his political like his tweets that are sort of political that are like this is wrong with the establishment. That his politics are so like unfocused and like non-specific that it's never really about the political issue that he's talking about because he doesn't have any like proposed solutions or like actual like policy desires. It's really just about him and being smart and like how the problems with the world are all related to bad things that happened to him in his life. And how he was like rejected from academia. Yeah, and I, I would say like I, I share both of your views about the relative impact and that on for most people, Eric is just a podcaster they listen to, right? And maybe some people have a slightly too much of an interest in his ideas, but or too much of an investment. But it's not that big of a deal. The only part that maybe I'm a little bit more concerned about is that Eric has a big audience, right? I'm not talking about the people in the Discord. I just mean in in general, he's got like a popular podcast and, you know, half a million followers or whatever. And he does have a habit of promoting or potentially laundering some people that I would consider more harmful, like uh, Mike Cernovich or... Uh, What's his name? Kurdish Mold- James O'Keefe. Yeah, James. James O'Keefe. Oh, Moldbug, yeah. The like, like when he had, he had James O'Keefe on his podcast, and the entire podcast was about how he's going to have a really contentious conversation with James O'Keefe, and really, and the whole his whole issue with James O'Keefe is that he thinks James O'Keefe is too mean because you know his videos cause people to get fired. It's not about that James O'Keefe is like an extreme liar that his videos are like extremely manipulatively edited to say to make to make it seem as if people are saying exactly the opposite of what they were actually saying in the raw footage and there's like many examples of those that you can watch and exist and that he doesn't bring that up in the podcast instead he's just like now i think you you know you're doing the lord's work you're you know you're bringing truth to the people but i have to take issue with the fact that you're so mean i don't understand the point of doing that unless you're trying to launder james o'keefe's ideas like what why <laughs> like yeah, I mean, Peter Thiel certainly sees something in Eric. That's why he's hired him. And Thiel is somebody, I think, with a much more nefarious, openly nefarious agenda. But that interview with O'Keefe to me was a really good example that if you just editorialize yourself as doing a hard-hinting interview, like if we were doing this interview and we kept saying, look, Dan, you know, I, I know we're pushing you hard here, but I think it's important that, people get these kind of critical engagements with people with different opinions. Like that's, that's the kind of thing he says while he's agreeing. 
almost entirely. I've never heard something presented as a hard-hitting interview where they called the other person heroic so many times. <laughs> I mean, the most the most hard-hitting interviews he's had is with um, Agnes Callard, uh, who dared to suggest that she didn't think what happened to his brother was such a big deal. That really pissed him off. That was like the worst. So my last question for you, Dan, is um, stepping back a bit and looking at your experience with the Jordan Peterson community and also Eric Weinstein's community. Just wondering if you could comment on what your sense is of those those social dynamics. If there were some hints of emotional manipulation or emotional control, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but so I just want to ask you, how would you describe the common features of those those social dynamics between the group and the leader? With with Jordan Peterson, I felt like there was much more people really felt like he was changing their lives, that like he had given them new purpose and that they like felt that they're sort of I don't know. I don't think it was particularly parasocial, but like that their relationship with him and their absorbing his content was really making a difference for them. And that was like a fundamental part of their lives. And it seemed like they were sort of forming their identity around it a little bit, Um, which to me, I don't think is indicative of like dangerously cult-like behavior. I just think it's like, it just makes them into annoying people who go around. And when you talk to them, you can tell that they're Jordan Peterson fans because they have their sort of like Jordan Petersonisms and stuff. With Eric, I don't think many people fashion their lives in a way that they feel like is deeply you know because eric, like eric weinstein has shown them a new way of living he's like shown them like what's really important about life but what they do have in common i think is they both i think are super attractive to people almost exclusively because of like the way that they talk they both have a way of talking that's just like enrapturing and is fascinating and i think it's it's just so interesting to me I wish that I could emulate it, not because I want to build a cult following or anything, but just because it's kind of, they both have kind of different techniques for doing it. And I do think Eric is exceptionally good at speaking in a sort of metaphorical way, using analogies and like roping in a ton of concepts into the things that he says. It makes me think that he sits around and every time he like encounters a new concept in life and he's kind of a curious person, he like thinks about that concept and he he puts it in the bank as something he can use as a metaphor later. And he's not even that repetitive with the metaphors that he uses. Like, you know, he'll always surprise us with like new, uh, (laughs) new things that he like, you know, uh, this is like someone learning to play the guitar and this is like someone drafting on a bicycle. And this is like, or do you know about the concept of, and he draws from all of these different areas of science and stuff that, you know, he has, you know, a cursory understanding of, but the main use that it has to him is of a metaphor. And when you just talk like in endless metaphors, I think it just has this effect of making things, everything that you say sound really profound. Like you're just sort of, everything you say isn't just like a factoid or an opinion. It's just kind of like a concept, you know, it's a concept that, that really brings different concepts in life together. And yeah, I think that's a really interesting reflection because um, in psychology, we distinguish between intuitive styles of thinking, which is metaphorical and work through making those connections between diverse ideas. And intuitive thinking is very satisfying because it's quite, it doesn't take a lot of effort to to grasp um, a concept that's been intuitively communicated in in those ways you're describing, whereas analytical thinking is a lot a lot more work and a lot less satisfying. So you know, obviously that that style of speaking and both JBP and Eric Weinstein are excellent speakers. Yeah, it's, uh, so yeah, I really think that's an interesting reflection about those commonalities. Yeah, and uh, Dan, I could continue talking to you all all day about this because I think you genuinely also have actual, aside from 
your experience in the community, you've got good insight on the kind of guru figures that we cover. Because like a lot of the points you're saying are, are very similar to things that we observe like week in and week out. One last point to make um, since time is pressing is that I know, Dan, just to further establish your mental stability, that you made a song for Eric, which people can see on YouTube, to apologize for getting him in trouble with his wife, basically. Yeah, I was having a conversation with Eric on the server that time that I was asking him about geometric marginalism. And he kept, you know, he could tell that I was asking him kind of you know, probing questions, and I was trying to get at something maybe he had done wrong or they over like claimed too much about. So every time I would ask a question, he would pause and he would respond by saying, "Thank you for honoring me with that question," and then he would continue to go on to try to answer it. Uh, so I made a song called "Thank You for Honoring Me," where afterwards, you know, he was refusing to come on the server, and he, you know, he, you know, all the other members of the server, many of whom I'm friends with, were asking me to apologize to him. So I made an apology video, so I can link it to you guys. I, I will say it's very good. Like I, I enjoyed the song. I don't know if you listened to it, Matt, but we'll we'll put it in the link. But you're you're actually, you know, good. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, I did listen to it. I enjoyed it a lot. So yeah, we'll definitely link to that. Enjoy the song, everybody. Dan, thank you very much for coming on and having this long conversation. I'm sorry, I need to cut short because of work commitments and those kind of annoying things but uh yeah thanks for thanks for coming on a lot yeah yeah anytime i'm hoping to find more thought leaders to obsessively look into and watch all their content get mad about there's so many to choose from these days so yeah you might want to rethink some of your life choices there dad because uh, i i think i'm spending too much of my life uh, doing the same but uh yeah no thanks again i i completely did agree with uh matt keep, keep doing what you're doing and um, fight the good side <laughs> <laughs> you don't end up like chris dad no